Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen, and I'm joined today by RCD contributor John Waters and RCD editor David Craig. Today, we are talking with retired Marine Lieutenant Colonel Stuart Scheller, an infantry officer who in part became well-known for viral videos on Facebook in which he criticized the political and military leadership for pulling out of Afghanistan and which ultimately led to being relieved of his command at the Advanced Infantry Training Battalion at Camp Lejeune. He's most recently the author of a new memoir looking at his 17 years in the Corps, Crisis of Command. Stu, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, guys. So uh, let's just start with the viral videos. What was your thought process and and how difficult was it for you to get there? Yeah, so I honestly don't think anything I did was political in nature. In my first video, I said, I have a growing discontent and contempt for senior military and political leaders. That's as close as I got to being political. All the articles that talked about me criticizing Joe Biden and a botched withdrawal were misleading. I never said that. And so they just wanted to project that on me. So I made one video demanding accountability of my senior military leaders. I outlined my senior military leaders' failures. Um, And after that, I didn't anticipate making any other videos. I didn't anticipate resigning. But I was immediately relieved and bullied, and I had to make a decision to apologize, walk back my comments, and stay silent or stand up for what I had said. And I believed in what I said. So that's when I continued to make statements. So the second second video was me basically saying I'm resigning. And then I made a third video, um, and then I was put on a gag order, made a fourth video, and ended up going to uh, the brig. And then after that, I remained silent until I got out. So each one was almost like unique. It was me continuing to push back uh, for a specific purpose, which I outline in the book. And there was no like in the beginning of this, I'm going to make four video deliberate plan long term. It was kind of you after each little battle, reassess the landscape, and then decide what to do next. And that was August of 2021. And I want to talk about you, your past. I want to talk about national security. Uh, But it's been a year. Since you looked into the camera and said, I have been fighting for 17 years, I am willing to throw it all away to say to my senior leaders, I demand accountability. Stu, what have you been up to for the last year? So I didn't get out until Christmas Eve. January through February, I just hit all the news channels because from when I got out of jail the first week of October to Christmas Eve, I I didn't make any comments and everyone was saying all these things about me and I just had to kind of, you know like a boxer in a ring, like cover up and just take the beating until I, you know, the bell rang on Christmas Eve and then I could get out and say what I needed to say. And so that was therapeutic, cathartic and was able to, you know, once you do one interview, I'll give you an example, like I did the Tucker interview and then all these people were like, well, maybe he's not crazy, you know? And so then like Jocko, Jocko called me like the next day, like, Hey man, I saw you on Tucker and it turns out like, you know, maybe I had the wrong impression. And so you start building momentum that way. Got on Megyn Kelly, got on, uh, you know, I've done a bunch of shows. And so then that, that brought me to middle of March and I, I locked myself in a room and wrote a book for six weeks. And once I did that, now you're looking at like May. So now we're only like three months out and all my stuff was still in personal storage. I had gone through a divorce. I had to find a place to live. I had to get a new car, just all the like life things. I didn't have a doctor. I didn't have a dentist, blah, 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 blah. Right. So it took me two months to just kind of get my life in order. And then once I did that, I started supporting political candidates. Um, I've been out to New Hampshire supporting Senate candidate Don Bullock uh, a couple of times. 
I was supporting J.R. Majewski up in Ohio. He won his primary. Uh, Carla Spaulding down in Florida, she won her primary. So I, I've been around the country, and it's really helped me kind of understand how the political game is played too. So it's been an education for me in a lot of ways. And now I'm getting ready for the book launch. So really this past week I've done, I did Tucker Carlson. I did Laura Ingram. Um, you know, I'm getting ready for the big media hits. Those are probably my bigger ones, but then I roll them out from here and uh, I got a book signing up until the holidays and that'll take me to the end of this year. And so we'll get to uh, the politics and where you've been recently, but let's go back to 26 August, uh, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. When I saw your first video, I was really struck by something. Uh, and for everyone's recollection, the suicide bombing at Hamid Karzai International Airport, I think 183 people killed, 170 Afghan civilians, the 13 American service members. And I remember the reaction to that. There was sadness and mourning for the lives lost. There was pride in how our service members conducted themselves. There was like an anguish among veterans who had served there to watch that happen. I, I remember reading a memo written by an 05 uh, Lieutenant Colonel Peer of yours to his infantry battalion, attempting to construe reality, essentially, attempting to explain what happened, and what it meant, why we fought there. Uh, the intent was good, but I think it came up short. People had regret. There was anger. But you were the guy who said accountability. That was your word. You had a certain genius for immediately recognizing what this symbolized and your message caught fire. How did you recognize this as a moment to call for accountability? So, yeah, you, you referenced the O5 peer of mine. I read what he wrote as well. I actually referenced it in the video. I don't call him out by name. I did call out General Berger and the Pentagon statement. So the Pentagon victimized us saying you need to go get mental health treatment if you're struggling. General Berger said, hey, don't worry about it. Your struggles are worth it. You prevented terrorism. My peer was like, hey, don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. It was all worth it. And all of it rang false to me. So as a major, after coming back from Ramadi in Afghanistan and all my other deployments, I wrote a thesis, 60 pages on how to make foreign diplomacy more effective. And my theory is the military really drives that economic and information probably being equally as important in today's world. Um, but, you know, I think in a lot of ways, Putin has given us an example of how realism can still be um, forced the world to react to you. So I've been debating how America could do this more effectively for a while. And the biggest problem is the scene between the DOD and the Department of State. And that's and I, and I did my first appointment was actually in Neo, where we worked with the Department of State, and I was able to see firsthand how messed that messed up that was. Then I later did another MU, another ten month MU, where as the headquarters company commander, all we did was evacuation training. So again, I got to experience how how inefficient that process is. And so your question, John, was how did I recognize it immediately? Well, I mean, I was watching when they made the decision to evacuate Bagram Air Base. I served on Bagram for a while. I mean, I didn't. I wasn't stationed there. I was always a passer through. But even when you're passing through Bagram, it's a 10-day stay in, in the in the suite of Bagram, right? And so most Marines didn't do that. Most Marines went down to Southwest to, you know, Kandahar, Helmand, Task Force, Leatherneck, all that stuff. And so I don't think a lot of Marines even had uh, an idea of how strategically important Bagram was and how big it was. And so I was unique in that sense as well. And so when they made the decision to evacuate it, I mean – that weekend, I mean, I put it in the book. So that 
suicide bombing was a Thursday on the 26th, that previous weekend, whatever that numbers are, I mean, I was at my house talking to my wife, like, this is ridiculous. Like, I've never seen such a list of bad decisions. Like, we were watching the Taliban just walk through, and I had already known that it was the peak fighting season, right? Everyone that's served there knows from November to March, there's no fighting because the Taliban hides in the mountains of Pakistan. So I realized then that September 11th was a PR date. And so when the suicide vest attack happened, quite honestly, at the time, I didn't know if it was 2-1 or 1-8. And I, as a regimental officer, had put 1-8 out on deployment. And 1-8 was my first unit. My best friend got blown up when I was in 1-8. So it was just like, it was like literally 17 years had culminated into that one mistake. And I was, I was, uh, I was just let down. Ironically, it's... What happened with Zahiri, Zawahiri happened almost uh, a year after the HKIL killed all our Marines and the soldier and the sailor, um, which is pretty telling about the decision there. John Sorensen and I interviewed one of the Northern Alliance guys not long ago, and I asked him because, you know, it looked like we had convinced Trump to retain Bagram as a base of operations to go against people like Zawahiri and where he was located. And he admitted that after the war, or at least after the Green Berets cleared out the Taliban from Afghanistan, that we should have just maintained Bagram and not even expanded our mission out there. We should have just gone after the bad guys and let the Afghans figure out what, what was the next step. There's no question. So, the, the, one of the biggest questions people ask me, my contempt of General McKenzie, is, hey, we know General McKen- McKenzie testified that he pushed back and said, I don't think dropping from 2,500 down to 650 is a good idea. And everyone's like, you know, once the president gave that order, what could he have done? There's a historical case study, and I put it in my book, of a guy named General Singlob, who was the commander of Korea, and Carter, kind of the same president as Biden, said, I want to pull all the forces out. And Singlob had the same opinion. If you do that, these all the progress we've made will be lost, and these two, North and South, will go to war, and it will invalidate all the sacrifices of the service members. And Carter said, I heard you out, but we're still going to do it. And then Singlob went public with his criticism and was able to change the course of the president's decision. I mean, that's courage. And we just don't make generals like that anymore, but there is historical precedence for that. And I, I only say that to say, Dave, I completely agree. The reason we don't have Bagram is mind-boggling. When we still have – like almost close to 50 to 100,000 people in Europe. We got, I mean, just people everywhere. And we couldn't afford 2,500. And, and even, even if it's not 2,500, it, it doesn't need to be 650, but like 1,000 to 1,500 could easily have held Bagram. It's disappointing. General McKenzie is the focus of your central argument in the book, Crisis of Command, which is that generals must be held accountable. Now, Stu, how is that even possible? How do we hold accountable just the general responsible for the withdrawal? Or do we hold accountable every general who presided over 20 years of war? But why not hold accountable the American people for allowing this to happen? You say you want accountability. How is it possible? Yeah, I mean, this is one of those questions that, to your point, there's culpability everywhere. Sure. But... The guy that's the leader, when the, the the worst part of it stops, like we have to at a minimum start there. Just, just look at the problem and say the problem's so overwhelming, I can't do anything about it, I think is the wrong answer. And that, a, a lot of criticism was given to me about that. 
Stu, you're just one lieutenant colonel. You can't change the system. I think once we start thinking like that, it's a defeatist mentality. We have to all believe that we can make change. So in this situation, we can all agree, I hope, that the Afghanistan evacuation was poorly planned and should have been done more effectively. If we can start there, then it's like, okay, we as Americans think winning war should be important. Let's signal that through incentives by saying, if you don't win war, then we're going to hold you accountable. Who is accountable? Now getting to like the third or fourth question down that line of logic, I would say it has to be the theater commander at the time. Now, if you want to go back and hold other people accountable, I'm all for that. I support that. But I'm I'm trying to just say, hey, let's just take the one guy who was in charge at the time that could have either gone public and pushed back or developed a better plan. And he didn't do that. So we have to at least start there. Well, in terms of optics, too, watching McKenzie and his response, even a day after the event occurred, I don't think I've ever witnessed a military commander appear so detached from such a tragic event. You know, I started running through my head, like, what was this guy's career background? Where has he been? I mean, was he a battalion commander in Iraq or something? You know, I don't know. I don't I don't know what his history is, but it was shocking to me how utterly detached he seemed from what just happened the day prior when he's making a comment about it. I know a lot of people that have served with him, you know, and I say it in the video where I tried to prefer charges against him. Like, I'm sure he's a good guy. I'm sure he's a great American. And I don't think he intended to fail, right? But that doesn't absolve him of accountability. And that's what I said in that fourth video. And, and I stand by that. I mean, he, I know he when he was a battalion commander, he was a, he was on a, the BLT, he was on the Mew. And so I had, I've gotten mixed reviews as you will get from, you know, any, any commander. Um, but I don't think he's a, he's a bad guy. He's just, he did, he did not do this well. And it goes back to, in the book, I talk about, we promote these generals based on their ability to get high subjective evaluation marks. I mean, if we were to take general McKenzie and put him in a warfighting lab and develop the scenario, however you want, you're going to command uh, a theater and here's the enemy and here's the problem, solve the problem. And I was to put a hundred majors in that same warfighting lab. One of those majors would beat him. I, I guarantee you. Now, we talk about equal opportunity all the time. In this Russia-Ukraine thing, General Walter was the European combatant commander. He is an Air Force guy that probably has no business fighting a large conventional war. Why did we make him the sacker? Because we feel the need to be fair and the Air Force has to get a combatant command too. And we think, Europe, nothing's going to happen in Europe. Let's give the Air Force guy that command. And then in April, he testifies, uh, the Russians are staging on the border of Ukraine, but I think it's just training and and nothing's going to materialize. He was completely wrong. Five months later, Russia invades and we never see that guy again. They hide him. Why? Because he's not the right guy to fight a war. And so, General McKenzie, you might have been a great guy. You've demonstrated through action that you weren't capable at the job level. And we need to get to a performance-based system and not this just ascending through your career because you've hit the right wickets. I don't know if there's a professionalism versus calling um, subtopic or argument within the book, but it seems that you object to military officership as a profession, uh, like being a doctor, like being a lawyer which is something that seemed to come into popularity in the late 90s, uh, pre-war on terror, that being a military officer was no different than holding a profession in civilian life. Uh, Is that part of what gets you so fired up that being a military officer or military leader should be a calling and not a profession? 
Mm. I don't know if it's, it's the way you frame the question, whether it's a calling or a profession. I don't think that's necessarily a binary choice. I do think it's a calling. I think all young officers and young enlisted that come in do it mostly for idealistic reasons. There's exceptions to every rule, but I mean, I've worked at SOI and at the basic school, right? I've seen them coming through and they're all top-notch Americans. It's, it's one of our best resources of our nation, to be quite honest with you. But I do think that, yes, it is it turned into a profession. And I think a lot of that had started with the all-volunteer force. So you said the 90s, but I would submit to you probably in the 80s when we went to the all-volunteer forces where it really became a profession of arms, vice, you know, political appointees like they were in the Civil War, where you could just come in and be a one-star, two-star general. Once we got into the all-volunteer force, it literally, you had to home grow them one from 40 years, and that turns it into a profession, right? Now, just because it's a time-based one to 40 years still doesn't mean that it can't be, profession of arms doesn't mean it can't be based on performance. That's where we're falling short. The profession right now has a system for getting you from one to 40 years, but that is a subjective evaluation in which you have to please your bosses. My and, and there's learning, obviously, that occurs on how to play the system, how to play the game, how to do whatever. But my what I'm submitting is it shouldn't take you 40 years if you're that talented. Once you get into the profession, if you can get to be the best warfighter in that lab, like I just described, where General McKenzie is going against all these majors and these majors demonstrate that they can fight a war better than he can. then maybe the 40 year old, 60 year old man isn't the guy we need leading the war. So let me take another run at my profession versus calling distinction. A dentist isn't going to die, doesn't see himself daily as willing to die to extract that tooth. A lawyer isn't ready to put up his life to get a judgment or a verdict on a case. But the Marine Corps infantry officer has to have that willingness. And so a lot of folks, I think, join those, particularly those combat arms service branches or MOSs, because they're, they want it to not be a profession. This is something more and deeper. Is that you? I mean, the only reason I joined, it was never to be a career military officer. And I try to pull that out in the book. It was always just to leave a better America for my children. And so, you know, the calling thing, it just kind of throws me as you keep asking the question, because it, to me, it was never, I never wanted to be in the military. It, it became a calling, like the, the moment it became a calling, I called the recruiter, right? It just was, I wanted to serve my country. So that was probably the calling and the means to do that was the Marine Corps. And so whether that was going to be in the FBI, whether that was going to be in some other function, I always, what was, you know, aggressive, wanting to run to the sound of guns. And so it probably would have been something with a gun. I don't, I didn't, hadn't figured that out until I was 23. But to me, once I got into the military, the, what really irked me was having to navigate this career and do all these other things that didn't have to do with necessarily leaving a better America for my children. And, you know, maybe they're not a direct correlation and maybe you need to do all these other things. Like I acknowledge if I go shoot out on the range all day, there's a time where I have to sit in the armory and clean my weapon. Right. And you may be like, I, well, cleaning my weapon has nothing to do with being awesome and shooting my gun, but you still got to do it. Right. So like I acknowledge that that exists. Right. But at the same time, if you were to take the list of hours that a major or a Lieutenant Colonel spends on whatever building, whatever product briefing, whatever sitting in a meeting, 90% of it has nothing to do with the core warfighting capability task. And so that's what I'm talking about, this chunk of time. And, and so I don't know if that ties directly to the profession of arms, but the profession right now, I think, has gotten off track. And that was kind of my frustration. 
When was it last on track? World War II. I, it, it was on track in World War II because we didn't have the national security establishment created. After World War II, we created the National Security Act of 44, 47, 50. And then went into the Goldwater Nichols Act after the Vietnam. And we created this thing that has never worked ever. The closest we got was Desert Shield, Desert Storm. But even then, George Bush Sr. didn't signal to Saddam Hussein, if you invade Kuwait, we will use military responses. Had he done that, he would have prevented the war outright. So blunder between executive and military minds right there. If he had good military advisors to tell him that, if there was communication between the National Security Council, we could have prevented a war. But we didn't. Then, But what he was smart enough to do was go in, achieve his objectives, and then get out. But that whole victory right there was undermined by his son with these lofty goals of exporting democracy. And, you know, so if you wash off the Iraq victory, I mean, Kosovo, Libya, Syria, I mean, Beirut, I mean, the list just goes on and on. Somalia, where we we have all these movies of these heroic things. But if you actually like like Black Hawk Down was the movie I watched over and over. Study the operational failures of Somalia. And it's disheartening. And so we just need, you know, if I had it my way, I would completely dismantle the national security establishment and I would build a performance-based system. I would change the Department of Defense to the Department of War. I would do what Marshall did after World War I and I would fire all these old apathetic generals and I would bring in fresh blood. And, you know, that would be a start. So you're calling for a citizen military. You want to go back to the before times, before victory in World War II, when we just summoned a bunch of people to fight a war and we had an absolutist definition of success. We weren't as pragmatic. I'm, I'm developing a counter argument. As pragmatic as we've become since then, you, you reject the professional military service. You want- I don't, uh, no, it's, no. So I'll push back on that assessment. I think there has to always be a professional arm that guides it. So, you know, maybe I have to read more about Eisenhower, but I think Eisenhower was always in the professional arms uh, and was brought up through the changes that Marshall made, right? So that's how Eisenhower was able to ascend. Now, in World War II, did they bolt on all these other people through different means like the draft? Like, sure, of course they did. But you still have to have that profession of arms to be able to manage all those bolted on pieces. So... You know, I've read a lot of articles about bringing the draft back or mandatory service like Israel could be good for the nation. I don't know. I don't know if I buy into that um, per se. There's some people that I I don't know. You know, you don't want them in the organization if they don't want to be in the organization. It's actually counterproductive. But I do think right now the, the recruitment problems are a symptom of the larger problem, and that has to do with leadership. Dave, you've got an opinion on the draft. Yeah. When I first came in, I remember thinking, you know, maybe we should have it. Like you, you were alluding to national service of some kind requiring it. And I had brought it up to some senior enlisted guys. Oh my God, I've never been shot down in an argument so fast. Uh, I mean, that make your head spin. But their argument was good. They said, uh, look at these young people, because I was old when I came in. They said, look at these young kids that you struggle to get to do what you want them to do. Imagine taking in some young kid that doesn't want to be here in the first place. These kids voluntarily signed up and you're struggling to train them, educate them, and prepare them to fight. But if they don't even want to be here at all, how do you how do you manage that? 
you know, how do you have an effective military organization or war, war fighting organization, which is what the Marine Corps always prides itself on? You know, how does that happen? It's a good, good question. I don't, there's no answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's more than leadership, though. I think the, politis, the politicization of the military in general has um, really caused the had a huge impact on the recruiting crisis. I, I was talking to someone the other day that knows a lot of senior military people and they're not, they're telling their kids not to join the military. They're so, like, this is not the same service that we served in. Now that's a controversial statement, Dave, because plenty of people think the military is independent and neutral and that military service members and veterans are among the most trustworthy people. Uh, so, Stu, I guess I'd put that to you. Do you see the military as a political institution? No. I always, you know, that's why I was so surprised that my comments became so hyper polarized. Um, that's just where our society is now. But, but I do believe that our general officers lack the ability to push back. They're people pleasing, made and conditioned through the system. So it doesn't matter what political party is in, in office they won't push back even if it's at the detriment of the military organization. So the, the Vogue term woke general is just misdiagnosing the problem. We have wokeism because that's what's important to political leaders at the time. And our military generals will do whatever our political leaders tell them to do without any pushback. And so it, it doesn't matter what the political issue is. We just don't have military leaders that can stand up for themselves. Let's assume they're reasonable though, the generals who were harping on and, uh, <laughs> who are attacking so heavily, let's assume they're reasonable. You say they have to sort of incorporate or absorb or assimilate the priorities of the political leaders. Isn't that a good thing? Yeah. I mean, we work for political elected leaders. So like I acknowledge that and I do believe in civilian leadership. That being said, there are times where, you know, the political leadership may say something where you're going to have to push back or, you know, like there may be a time where you have to resign, like Singlob, like the example I gave to bring public awareness to the situation. And we, I, I can't even think of a situation where that's happened. Stu Scheller? Yeah, yeah, that's right. There you go. That's right. I've got a friend. Uh, he's a major in the Marine Corps. <clears throat> we were talking about you, and he said, he's just like those generals he dislikes so much. I agree with what he's saying. But I think Stu is power hungry and self-righteous, and he's just frustrated that he's not the one who's in charge. That's kind of stinging, but how do you respond? I, that's, that's weird. I mean, I, I obviously gave up on my power. So, I mean, I guess if I'm trying to understand what he's saying, he's saying that the platform I built for myself was like a like I thought about it beforehand and therefore was able to build a platform. You know, first of all, the platform that I have and the book that I'm doing and all the things I'm doing, this is a lot of work. Like this isn't just handed to me. I feel like people just assume that like all of a sudden a book was given to me and I just showed up on all these shows. Like to get on these shows, people have no idea how many people I'm calling and how many events I'm going to and how many business cards I'm giving out. Like I am working right now. I'm working my ass off. So I take a little offense to people just thinking that this is handed to me, number one. Number two, there is no way that I could have predicted what I had come into. And so to think, and there's an extension of that argument that that major made, which is it was just for money. Like for me to know 
that like by my third video, Eddie Gallagher was going to call me. He was going to set up the foundation. I was going to end up in jail and $2 million were going to get funneled into this is ridiculous. But at the same time, it gives people a reason to say, look, look, no, he's not just principled in his stance. He's got other motives because I'll tell you what, what I would say back to this major, if I am just a principled dude who did the right thing, then that's an indictment on you. And so it is much easier for you to find reasons that are wrong with me because then it protects you. Well, you bring up another interesting point, um, Eddie Gallagher. Both of you were conspicuously incarcerated in the military justice system. What happened to both of you? Have you ever reflected on that as to what recommended changes you would have to the Marine Corps legal system? John's a lawyer now. So we will debate this topic occasionally, such as what's going on in Congress currently to have civilian oversight of the military justice system. The biggest problem that we've noticed is that commanders either don't have the time or not educated or don't have the interest to properly effectuate legal proceedings and the rights of the accused in the military. And it was exemplified in you and Eddie Gallagher. Can you elaborate on that? And what do you, what do you think there is to fix that? The legal system is is broken. I, I, I used to be a believer in it. I, I remember being a captain and them talking about there was a situation where um, a drill instructor at boot camp pushed a Marine in the water and he drowned, something like that. This was a while ago. And the outside legal agencies wanted to come in and investigate. And the Marine Corps was able to hold them off and, and conducted through the UCMJ. And we talked about in my EWS class why that was so important. And if you were to go back and talk to Captain Scheller then, I, I was a believer. What I've seen now and what is just like strings of coming out the MARSOC 3 is a perfect example with Colonel Shaw threatening the defense attorneys. The defense attorneys in the military system are being punished for defending cases. So that's obviously a huge problem. Multiple commandants have engaged in undue command influence before the legal process has gone through. None of them have been held accountable for it. That's an obvious problem. I put it in my book. There was a situation with this Corporal Oheo, Te Ohu, I don't know, it's a weird Hawaiian name. I've talked to her on the phone a couple of times. I mean, it's like a perfect case study for like, there's mistreatment and the judge or a legal team might offer advice and these commanders can just squash the advice. That's number three. And then number four, the investigative process in the military is so skewed. It's like a commander just sending his guy to say, find the things that I want you to find. And that investigating officer has complete discretion on what they put in the investigation. And so for all those reasons, I just, I, I'm not, I, I, I'm actually an advocate for bringing in civilian oversight. What I, what I push back on is, Congress right now wants to just take like sexual assault out of the military's hands. That's addressing the wrong problem. The whole problem is the system that I just described. So just addressing a symptom of that would actually create more problems. So I would submit we need either independent defense attorneys with independent defense, I don't know, investigations that aren't beholden to the same promotion system, or we need to allow some outside entity in. But right now it's not working. I mean, Eddie Gallagher, they came into his house with his wife at gunpoint with his children. This is a guy like whether you think he did the right or wrong thing, like it just blow, it boggles the mind. Yeah, it's it's just it's amazing. Um, and well, and even that book that got some acclaim, we interviewed the author 
and I, for whatever reason, I couldn't participate. John handled it. But um, in retrospect, this guy's book was purely based off the prosecution's evidence against Gallagher. There wasn't any Eddie Gallagher evidence. You know, it wasn't objective. What's so, and which which is funny because John Waters was mentioning to me one day that you know there was this guy that uh, said the truth probably somewhere in between Eddie Gallagher's book and the other book that was written about him. But Tom Rick said, "Oh no, that can't be true." And I was like, "Tom Ricks must not have read the book or really understood it." I I just don't get it. Did Tom Ricks ever serve in the military? Of course not. Yeah. So shut up, Tom. Let's get on to military recruiting. You mentioned this earlier. Um, we've been seeing in the Navy a release of bonuses. I don't know if you've noticed this, Stu, for command and post-command O5s in the Navy. Now, at the time of your videos, <clears throat> you were a command O5, uh, meaning you were very successful among your peers. You had a lot of responsibility in the service. And the Navy right now is having to incentivize retention for these Navy commanders, aviators, submariners, ship drivers at a point in their careers when they are probably likely to promote to 06 and take leadership positions and gain even more time in service, better retirement benefits and so forth. It seems unusual that the service has to give a bonus to retain these from all accounts, outstanding officers. Why do you think we are losing O5s? I know this is in the Navy, you were in the Marine Corps, but is there a connection between your story and what's happening as a broader trend in the Navy? Well, first of all, there is no worse job in the military than a Navy ensign on a ship. That is probably like watching those poor people working 20-hour days, getting shit on by their chiefs, by their senior officers having to get that deck qual, which is like their career is like hanging in the balance of that. I mean, it's, it, I, I watch them and just think like, I, I can't believe anyone would want to do this. So I'll start there. Like, and then you have to go through all that and then you still have to do all the military bureaucracy things. So like, who would want to do that? But I think, yeah, I think to your point right now, you just, I mean, read my book. We, we, we do not treat people well. And it's so funny because we always talk about it, but we focus on like the captain and staff sergeant level. And we don't even, it doesn't even com compute that the colonels and generals are really the ones that need to be addressed. Can you speak to some of the risks when you're an O5? Uh, there may be the risks to your reputation, the legal risks. And I'm talking about before you post videos criticizing your chain of command. What are some of the risks in the minds of 05, 06 level commanders, maybe today that even weren't in their minds 10 or 15, 20 years ago? It's a, it's a fine line, right? So I found the reason I was so successful, I'm a fairly intelligent guy, is you got to figure out every commander says they want honest feedback and there's that's not true. And so it's an art of figuring out where their threshold is and then going up to that and almost crossing it a couple of times shallowly. And so each commander is different. And I, I, as a commander, always wanted someone to push back because it made me better as a commander. When you just get everyone saying, yes, sir, then it's, it's tough. But if you get guys that are smart and can push back, it makes the group better, in my opinion. 
But yeah, your question was how how can that be negatively? If you're that guy that figures out where that threshold is, or is just uh, emotionally unintelligent and doesn't even realize that there's a line, and you cross it a couple times too many, you've now just gone from the one to the five because you frustrated that commander, and and that's just kind of the way the game works. And so there's nothing the cardinal sin in the military is publicly disgracing your boss. That is the number one way you will get fired in the military, and that may just be through what you say. That may be how the unit performs based on your performance as a staff officer. The regimental commander told the division commander he was going to do X and that X doesn't happen. And that's on you as the major, right? So whatever it is, like if you make him or her look bad, you're going to either get fired or you're going to get dropped to the bottom in terms of rankings. And so it's it's all just being emotionally intelligent in a bureaucracy and figuring out how to navigate it, at least in the current one, for sure. And that's something you experienced as a regimental opso. And in the book, you recount this in detail. It's, it comes across, I don't want to call it a breaking point for you, but definitely a hinge moment where things went from being pretty good in the Marine Corps to not so good. I can't describe to you the swing from MARSOC, like green pastures to regimental opso in terms of my overall happiness. I mean, the hours, the hours were less at Marsoc too, but they weren't, it wasn't, the hours wasn't probably the biggest thing. It was just the way I was treated. Um, and the, in the meaningness, meaningfulness of the work as a regimental opso, I, I go back to that 90% of your time is all this other stuff. Like the amount of things that I did as regimental opso, my emails, like you could sit there in real time, watch emails, hit my inbox, like a machine gun going off. And you would develop as a regimental opso a way to scan like 10 emails without opening them and just think like, I got to open that one and then scan down to the next 10 and be like, I got to open that one. But you wouldn't even open all of them. I mean, that's um, so, yeah, I, I definitely think the regimental opso, I became disenfranchised with the whole system. And, and it, but it wasn't just the job. That's also when Afghanistan was falling apart. And that's also when the Marine Corps was trying to make a pivot to your force design, focus on China, forget about this over here. That's also when COVID was becoming ridiculous. So it was like all of these things just kind of came together at that time in my life. So it was more than just the job. It was just my frustration with the whole thing really started building in that one year of my life. Would you change anything about that time if you could go back right now? You know, I, I don't know if that that uh, exercise is useful. I mean, I, I do play it through. I try to remain focused forward. There's, uh, you know, just on the event itself, there's things I would have done differently, but I stand by my message and, and what I stood for. And so, you know, everything that led up to it, there's always things you could do differently, but uh, it played out the way it did. So let's catch up to uh, present day. Let's talk politics for a second. <clears throat> Are you moving back to your home state of Ohio? Uh, yes, I have residency in Ohio right now. And you said you've been campaigning in New Hampshire. I was doing town halls with the Senate candidate, Don Bolduc. So I'm supporting him. So I have uh, I've been out there doing town halls with him. Okay. And so are you running for office in 2024? I have not decided. There is a uh, So there is a group of people that want me to run – for the Senate, they have a uh, it's a draftstew.com. You can check it out, and they're trying to build support to convince me to do it. But I haven't. I'm gonna focus on the book the next six months, and in January 23, I will reassess. Is this a tough thing for you? You don't seem like you want to be political. 
Like you didn't write that. You didn't write this book to be political. You didn't take a stand to be political. What's that like? It's so funny. Like all these people ask me too, like, cause they just assume that it's politics. And they're like, you know, if you were trying to be political, like, why'd you say that stuff about Trump? Like, why'd you say that fill in the blank? And I was like, my, First of all, my goal was never to be a politician. So like if you when you understand that, my goal was just to make enough noise to make people look and say, hey, there might be a problem over here, right? Now, I still don't want to be a politician. I would love nothing more than to work in a think tank and read and write all day. But at the end of the day, people like that have to give a piece of paper to some other person that's going to take action on it. And oftentimes in foreign diplomacy, that's our politicians. And I just don't know if I can sit on the sideline and watch some of the, lack of a better term, cowards that we have up there now. I mean, we just need more people with courage. And so, yeah, all that to say, I don't know what all that means. Um, and we'll, we'll reassess after the holidays. Okay. Dave, John? Well, I think that's probably a, a great place to end for today. Uh, Stu Scheller, thank you so much for joining us. And I, I hope you'll come back on again sometime. Yeah, I hope so. Thanks for having me on, guys. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe and rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen. In the show notes, you can find a link to sign up to receive The Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For John Waters, David Craig, and everyone here at Real Clear Defense, I'm John Sorensen.